This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Carvings of swastikas on playground equipment in Longmont are the latest example of hate-related vandalism in Colorado. The carvings were found Monday. Over the summer, there were two other reports of hate imagery in Longmont. And in the fall in Denver, a swastika was spray-painted on a door at a Stapleton Elementary School. That's among a number of similar Uh, events that happened in the city. These incidents certainly grab headlines, but we want to put them into context. Scott Levin is Mountain State's regional director for the Anti-Defamation League. Scott, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Ryan. It's great to be here. And when these kinds of things happen, I do wonder so many things. Who? Why? Is it more frequent? So first, how many hate crimes and incidents are you tracking at the ADL in Colorado now? And how does that compare to the past? Well, Ryan, right now we're tracking over three dozen incidents that occurred just since the election. This is probably twice as much as all of the incidents that we had last year. So there does feel that there is quite an increase of incidents that are occurring. Okay. And when you say incidents, what do you mean? Put a finer point on the kinds of activities you're seeing. Absolutely. In Colorado, we have a statute that is the bias-motivated statute, commonly known as a hate crime statute. Uh And that's one form of uh, incidents that we're tracking. Those are times when people actually are committing a crime, either against a person or property. But they're doing it because they're motivated by the person's race, religion, ethnicity, their background, their sexual orientation, those type of things. Okay, but that can capture crimes both against people and property. Absolutely. So vandalism, like you spoke of, the swastika incident, that would be a form of vandalism against property, could be a hate crime if it was motivated by one of those protected categories. And in those incidences, when a hate crime takes place, then a prosecutor can decide to charge them in addition to the underlying crime with the bias-motivated crime, which would be an enhancer, or otherwise the penalty would be greater against them. Okay, so the three dozen or so instances you're tracking all fall into that category. No, some of them do that. Others are what we would call incidents of hate. And these are situations that aren't going to rise to the level of being an actual crime. Okay. And these might be something like the young woman who's a high school senior at South High School goes into Starbucks. She's wearing a hijab. And unfortunately, somebody comes up to her and says to her, your days in this country are numbered. Now, that's being done because she's wearing the hijab. It's being done because of her religion. But that is likely not going to be something that a prosecutor would take and bring a bias-motivated statute crime or hate crime against. Them. Okay. And th- that instance is a real instance that's not a fabricated uh, sort of um, example that you're... Absolutely. Sorry. We have any number of types of incidents like that that have occurred, whether it be from the person that comes out to their car and scrawled in their snow might be the word Jew that's on there. That's being done to try and intimidate the person. It's being motivated because of who that person is and sending a message out to them. Okay, so of the, say, three dozen instances you're tracking, are more of them the former or the latter? At at this time, more of them are the latter. More of them are incidents of hate than actual hate crimes. So that wouldn't be brought into a court of law, for instance. That's correct. But it's still very, very important that when those occur, that they be reported to law enforcement because they can escalate into then being the next level, which would be a hate crime itself. What do you attribute the increase to? Well, I 
I would say that there has been a certain emboldenment or empowerment that's occurred for people to use a kind of language and to take actions that they haven't done in quite a while. And a lot of this, I think, is due to the rhetoric that's occurred during our most recent election cycle. What do you think could reverse the trend? I think there's a lot of things that people can work on to do. Um, one of them is is to uh, be able to report what happens immediately and allow the law enforcement to investigate it and to determine whether it is a crime or not. But at the same time, it's important to also report it and make it public to more than just law enforcement, because I think part of this is about our society sending a message to people who have been the targets of this hate that they actually are welcome in our communities. In other words, these incidents of hate and these hate crimes are being said, we don't like you because of who you are. So it's important, I think, for the rest of us to be able to stand up and say, no, that's not correct. We do welcome you into our community here in Colorado. I want to go back to the carvings of swastikas on the playground equipment in Longmont. Yes. So it it strikes me that that's not necessarily directed at any one person, right? It's a message to whomever sees it. That's correct. Is that then prosecutable in some way beyond just being... Uh, you know, uh, uh, destruction of public property. Right. So destruction of public property or vandalism is a crime that yeah, exists in out there. Itself. It's then up to law enforcement, the police, to investigate and find out what was the motivation for that to occur. Now, again, a swastika in and of itself is a symbol of hate. It isn't always an anti-Semitic symbol, for instance. Um, it's associated, obviously, with the Nazi party and with uh, a great, the greatest act of anti-Semitism that occurred during the Holocaust. But today it's being used as a symbol of hate and it's being used pretty widespread. So context can matter. Context matters. Absolutely. When it's, um, when you're trying to determine the nature of the speech, that is. And I guess I'm curious how often these instances are solved. I mean, so someone traces something in the snow or carves something into a playground um, that strikes me as a tough case to crack. Well, I, th- I think law enforcement, when they're um, – and we have great law enforcement around the Denver metropolitan area and in Colorado. When they do investigate these matters, like any crime, uh, they take it seriously and they try to find out who the perpetrator is. To find out whether or not it is a hate crime itself, a lot of that is going to have to do with the evidence in and around it. What does the swast- – what does the – excuse me, the language of the graffiti say. Um, that can do it. Where is it located? Um, what if a perpetrator is there? What has he said about it? All of that will give it that context. Mm. Early data that CPR has gathered show incidents of hate crimes have gone up in the city of Aurora, but are down overall in Denver from a high that was actually quite a few years ago. Uh, in either case, we're talking about, you said about three dozen cases that the ADL is tracking. Do you think too much is being made of this? I don't think so, because what I am most concerned about isn't the number of prosecutorial uh, attempts to try and get a hate crime against someone. What's really important here is that we don't normalize this language of hate that's going on. In other words, one of the things that used to happen and why I think anti-Semitism by and large has gone down as well as racism and some of the other types of isms that are out there is because there was always a societal cost for the bigot. 
if you use this kind of language that was out there, people were going to look and treat you differently. If we normalize that behavior, then we run a risk that these numbers will get much, much larger. Thanks for being with us again. Thank you. Scott Levin is Mountain State's Regional Director of the Anti-Defamation League. Just ahead, a bug threatens wine grapes on Colorado's western slope. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A most unwelcome insect has turned up in Colorado wine country. Phylloxera is a louse that can kill grapevines, and there is no cure. Colorado State University viticulturist Horst Kaspari and entomologist Bob Hammond are fighting this pest in the vineyards of the Grand Valley. They are in our Grand Junction studio. Uh, first off, what is phylloxera, Horst? Uh, explain what this, I guess, aphid-like insect looks like and does. I think that's a question you should really ask Bob because he's the entomologist. Okay. I don't refer to him. Well, Bob, you, you take that one. <clears throat> phylloxera is an aphid-like insect. It, it's, um, there's a whole family of aphids and there's a sister family of phylloxerans and other of adelgids that are all closely related. They suck... Um, juices from the plant, and they feed on the roots, and they can be devastating to vineyards. Once you have phylloxera in a vineyard, um, the vineyard is pretty much doomed. It's it's going to have to be replanted at some point. So it's a very serious uh, pest for the wine industry. And it has really wreaked havoc in history, hasn't it? Uh, especially, I think, in Europe? Uh, that that is correct. That is how speaking now. Um, it was introduced to Europe in the 1850s, probably. By the 1960s, they started to see significant damage to unrooted European grapes. So we're talking about the Vitis vinifera. Um, and by about the early 1900 or so, most of Europe was already succumbing. Most of the European vineyards were already you know, succumbing to that damage from that phylloxera. And they all had to be replanted. Uh, the initial response was crossbreeding European grapes with American species because the American species actually has resistance. And then um, a professor at Texas A&M, Munson, discovered that we can actually do a little different trick. Uh, we keep an American species as the root, but we craft European grape on top. And mm. so now when you look around the world, most vineyards where phylloxera is present in the world are today grafted to rootstocks. So you have Chardonnay, Malot, Cabernet, Sauvignon as the top, but the root is something very different, something that is resistant to the phylloxera damage. Interesting. And uh, what about the vineyards in the Grand Valley? How resistant are they to phylloxera? The uh, problem or the good news for us, the good news has been we didn't have phylloxera so we were lucky that we could grow European grapes on their own roots. Hmm. So currently about 85% of our vineyards are actually true to type. So the root is Chardonnay, the top is Chardonnay. That, of course, makes them very susceptible to the damage by the phylloxera. And hence our concern about the find that we had a couple of months ago. So how much phylloxera is there in the Grand Valley? How many vineyards, say, are affected? Bob, do you know that, uh... 
Oh, we so far we've found four vineyards uh, with phylloxera, but we've had limited survey, and a lot of the survey we've done has been within vineyards to see what varieties they're on and, and how extensive, how widespread they are within the vineyard. I have no doubt that we will find more vineyards uh, in the area once we start looking in earnest, but we're only um, about two months into this. And uh, we've been looking at one form on the roots, the overwintering form, which is the small aphid. We have to dig up roots to find them. So uh, over time, I have no doubt we will find more infested vineyards. Is it exceptional that the Grand Valley had been phylloxera-free for so long? Because this, this exists elsewhere in the United States, doesn't it? It is. Um, we are one of very few regions in the world that actually can grow European grapes on their own roots. Most of Washington State currently also is free of phylloxera, although some parts do have phylloxera, and I understand that they are quarantined. Uh, parts of Australia are free. When I worked way back then in New Zealand, Marlborough region was free, but then it was introduced, and they went through pretty much the same headaches that we are facing now, you know, devastation maybe from the phylloxera to the unrooted vines and, and a need to replant to craft its stock. Devastation. So is that is that what's in store for these four vineyards and possibly more? Not necessarily. Um, I was talking earlier, I think the best way to look at phylloxera is, think of it as a flu. You feel the symptoms coming on and you don't feel quite right. You know, and then maybe it hits you really hard and you're in bed for three days. And after that, you're not going to catch that particular flu virus again. You're going to be fine. So I think the impact that phylloxera is going to have on our industry will depend. Um, you know, in, in some regions, you don't see much damage, despite the fact you have own rooted vines and phylloxera is present. Huh. Uh, it can come on really quick. Or it can take a very, very long time, and we will not know the answer to that until we are a few years in. Um, the immediate impact for the next year or two or three is going to be small, but if phylloxera takes over, vineyards are going to succumb you know, over a period of five to ten years where they become not productive and they have to be replanted to crafted vines. So it's not something that's instantaneous, uh, but it is, a, I would say, a medium-term headache in the long term, once we have replanted the crafted, crafted rootstocks, crafted material, we're going to be fine again. But that sounds expensive to have to replace your vines. It is expensive, yes. Okay. Perhaps the most expensive part is when you pull a vineyard out and replant, you have to go three years or so without a crop. And, and while the replanting costs can be relatively high, a few thousand dollars an acre to replant, you then go three years with no income. So that's part of the big expense. And I think some growers will look at, do I have to pull the whole vineyard right now or can I salvage some production for a couple of years and replace it little by little so I can have some income flowing through? But it is a very expensive proposition. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about the arrival of phylloxera in the Grand Valley, where most of Colorado's wine grapes come from. I'm joined by Colorado State University viticulturist Horst Gasparsi and entomologist Bob Hammond. And uh, Bob, is there some sense of how phylloxera made it into the Grand Valley? 
Well, long-distance dispersal phylloxera is almost always aided by humans and with transport of plant material, and we strongly suspect that it was infested planting material that came in, probably has been coming in for a few years and probably multiple introductions and from multiple sources. And phylloxera has been long established. It's actually native to the eastern United States. And um, there are treatments that can be done to plant materials, namely a hot water treatment that can can stop phylloxera, kill phylloxera uh, on the plants, but not all uh, plant material that's brought into the west slope has been hot water treated. Hmm. And we suspect it's been through these plant materials that it arrived. Does that point to a sort of hole in the defense wall that needs to be plugged? Absolutely. I think any growers uh, have to be aware that if they bring phylloxera into the vineyard, the vineyard uh, is not going to thrive and it's going to have to be replanted. The first vineyard we found it in has already been pulled and that was planted in 2014. And probably a quarter of the plants were dead already from phylloxera. Um, but it never had a chance from the time it went into the ground. Oh, wow. Can you name that vineyard? No. Okay. Um, are there changes that need to be made in terms of the law or awareness or what? The uh, the big thing is biosecurity within vineyards. Uh, the phylloxera, the, the, when it first hatches from the eggs, and these are asexual eggs, that um, the first instar nymph is called a crawler, and it is built and programmed to move around. And if we have an infested vineyard and people move from vineyard to vineyard, equipment moves from vineyard to vineyard, we're just moving this insect around. So we have to come up with some sort of biosecurity plan to limit the movement between vineyards and within vineyards. And that's something we haven't had to deal with in the past. And it's a change of mindset, actually, that's going to have to occur with the vineyard growers. And they're going to have to be very very aware of biosecurity within their property. Biosecurity. between properties. Yeah, biosecurity and wine country. Uh, Horst Kasparsi, is that uh, something new for growers? Is that a new mindset it, they'll have to get into? It is, it is a new mindset. Um, you, know, we are, you know, we are very friendly neighbors. I mean, I have my own vineyard. My neighbor always helps me out with his tractor and equipment. Now, if my neighbor had phylloxera, I certainly would not want his tractor, his equipment on my vineyard, right? Mm-hmm. So we have many operators who own or operate more than one site. So they're constantly moving equipment, moving people from one vineyard block to another site to another site. We have people who help, you know, with the netting operation, bird, bird netting, protect the grapes from the birds. Uh, so the tractor moves from vineyard A to vineyard B to vineyard C. Not knowing if phylloxera is in vineyard A or not, means we nearly need to clean that tractor, we need to clean these boots before we go from vineyard A to vineyard B. By the time we leave B to go to C, we have to repeat that process. Clean everything very thoroughly, disinfect your boots, disinfect whatever equipment you've been using before you go to the next vineyard. And, you know, when you're operating 15 different sites, uh, cleaning becomes a big job. Yeah. It makes it harder to be more neighborly, I guess. Are, are, it does, unfortunately. Yeah. Are vineyards insured against this kind of thing, Horst? I don't think they're covered by insurance for that, no. Okay. 
So, Bob Hammond, are there any steps that uh, a vineyard can take once phylloxera is present to somehow get the milder version? Um, or is is it really just out of their hands? Well, there are some insecticide treatments that can buy time, and it might be buying extending the life of that vineyard for four or five years. But the insecticide treatments are, are very limited and they're less than perfect. So once um, uh, phylloxera is found in a vineyard, uh, the grower has to start figuring out when do, do I replace this, can I replace it, what should I replace it with, and should I go with some insecticides to extend uh, my the life of that vineyard, but uh, our options are, are pretty limited. And, and the other thing they have to do is baby the vineyard through and take proper care of water and fertility and, and see if they can stretch and get another crop or two out of it. At the same time, protecting the rest of uh, the uninfested vineyards around from, from getting the phylloxera plague. Yeah. So four vineyards so far, and you, you expect that number to climb? I have no doubt it's going to climb huh. the more we look. Well, let's wrap up with this. If I'm a wine lover um, who appreciates wines made of grapes from the West Slope, is there going to be a, a moment when I just can't get that wine? Or will growers make sure that there's some continuity between the old and the new vines, Horst? No, there won't be any time where you won't get wine. That's just not going to happen. Um We've been through much worse. I look at um, cold temperature events. We had really cold nights where with, un- with one single night, we have lost 50% of our crop. And we went from a 2,000-ton crop in one year to less than 1,000 the next year. And still, we make wine. So the impact of phylloxera is going to be gradual and over time. And as one vineyard goes down or gets not productive anymore, we're going to replant and then three years later, we have the new crop coming in, maybe the same variety, just this time on a on a grafted rootstock. So I don't think there was going to be any problem with with uh, wine supply at all. Sighs of relief all over Colorado, gentlemen. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. You're very welcome. We heard from Bob Hammond. He's an entomologist and CSU extension agent, and Horst Kasparsi is a viticulturist with Colorado State University. They are attempting to stem the spread of a vine-destroying insect in the Grand Valley. That's where most of Colorado's wine grapes are grown. Do you ever wish you had a little voice in your ear to help you get through tougher moments at work? Some teachers in Denver schools now do, with coaching in real time. It's happening at a high-poverty, high-performing elementary school in the city. Officials say it makes a difference. Here's CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine. When she was a teacher and her classroom was getting a little chaotic, Sarah Carlson wished she'd had a little message like this one in her ear. Narrate three, consequence one. Carlson is now a coach, giving short, concise instructions over a walkie-talkie to a teacher wearing an earbud. Carlson remembers chaotic classrooms where she focused on academic targets alone. And I was so stressed out about that that I was just pushing them to, like, listen to what I say, do what I say when I say it. And they weren't invested in me enough to want to do those things. Many teachers burn a lot of time trying to control their classes. Carlson's epiphany was that highlighting the positive things her students were doing might 
might get the goofing off students back on track. It turns out that is a teaching method developed by the organization CT3, the Center for Transformative Teacher Training. It's called No-Nonsense Nurturing. The training changes a teacher's behavior to improve student engagement in class. At this school, that engagement level has tripled. Teachers are coached in real time wearing earpieces. But first, teachers are observed. Um, so there was a moment when you... We're talking to Braylon, and you said Braylon. This is Sarah Carlson, who is now director of culture at Rocky Mountain Prep Creekside School. She's in a pre-conference with a teacher, preparing for an afternoon training We're session. Talking to Braylon, and you said Braylon, please stop talking. That's disrupting. But then there was no follow-up with a consequence, mm-hmm. and there weren't specific narrations prior to that. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that moment. And First grade what... teacher Carrie Myers hasn't given narrations. Those are one-line observations about positive things students are doing, followed by a one-line reminder to the student who yelled about class expectations. By not holding the boy who yelled to the same high standards, Myers realizes it sends him the message that he can't do it. Yes, and that's what we want to get to a place where, like, Braylon, I'm here for you. Together, they script out what Myers will say for her class lessons. Precise instructions, the voice level students should have, why they're doing an assignment, and what to do if they get lost. Your eyes are tracking, your lips are zipped, and if you get lost, you can watch where my fingers. A few minutes later, Myers is in her classroom, earbud on, saying the exact script to her 29 first graders. They're sitting silently cross-legged on a carpet. Coach Carlson is at the back of the room, speaking short commands into a walkie-talkie. Use proximity to get Dumble to sit down. On that cue, Myers simply moves and stands next to the child. He sits down. Myers continues with her lesson, and she's starting to get the hang of it. We don't have geese that like golden eggs, so what can we learn from this story? I see Lillian really thinking. She's narrating on her own. Leah Pearson from the Transformative Teacher Training Center is coaching the coach, Sarah Carlson. She's also explaining to me what's going on. She cued her to narrate around Joshua. Because Joshua is not engaged to see if he'll fix himself. And then he did. Without needing a prompt, the kids next to Joshua suddenly straighten up and pay attention too. To some, the scripted directions can seem robotic. Commands are crisp and emotionless. Critics of the training say the method is too focused on compliance. The center's Leah Pearson says not so. We try to train the coaches to get the teacher to think about power or purpose. So is there purpose for voices off and being silent? Or in this case, would it be better to have students talk and engage? What's going to serve them best? The kids discuss what the story means, and then they transition to writing. Lisandro, your job is to already be writing. That's a reminder you've got this. That's a reminder you've got this. That's the public consequence Myers was missing before. It's a gentle, positive way of reminding the student of what they're supposed to be doing. During the coaching session, Myers went from 80% of the kids actively participating to 95%. Carrie Myers says when this method becomes automatic, she can really focus on teaching her first graders. It's not telling me how to teach. It's helping me manage behaviors. Being able to do that effortlessly lets me be more authentic. Like really listening to the kids more or letting her own goofiness come out without it derailing the class. Teachers in 16 Denver schools have received real-time teacher coaching. I'm Jenny Brandine, Colorado Public Radio News. When we come back, the Winter Park Ski Train rides again. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. This weekend marks the return of a beloved train and a traffic-free way to get to the slopes. The Winter Park Express will once again take passengers between Denver Union Station and the base of Winter Park. It's a joint effort involving Amtrak, Union Pacific, and the ski resort. The first train of the season leaves Denver Saturday at 7 a.m. Mark Maglieri is an Amtrak spokesman. Mark, welcome to the program. Happy to be with you, Ryan. Happy to be on our train to Denver this afternoon. Ah, you'll, you'll be on it. I'll be on the California Zephyr this afternoon to come your way, and then I'll be waving at the Winter Park Express as it pulls out, nearly sold out, on Saturday morning. I see. Tell me about the trip. Where does it go? What path does it take? How long does it take to get up and down? Well, for those who are familiar with the previous uh, ski train operation, it's going to be pretty similar. We're going to leave from Denver Union Station, just as it did, and we'll go right to within... um, eye shot of a ski lift at the Winter Park Resort. You'll step out, we'll hand you your gear, and off you'll go. It's the only rail-to-rail-to-airport connection nationally, too, because of the RTA's University of Colorado A-Line from the airport to Union Station, and then from Union Station to Winter Park on our train, leaving weekends, Saturdays and Sundays at 7 a.m., arriving at Winter Park at 9 Spend the day, and you'll be skiing in moments after you arrive there. Hop back on the train at 4.30, and we'll have you back Union Station at 6.40. So it's a great way to do it. And we're seeing some interesting buying patterns, too, since we announced this back in August. Uh, I'll ask about those in just a moment. But so it's basically a two-hour trip each way, correct? Yes, and if you've driven I-70 and US-40 up to uh, Winter Park and Fraser, and I've done it on a weekend... Uh, it is uh, it is no joy, no matter how good the Colorado-style pizza might be if you stop off <laughs> just to get off the road. It is still not a pleasant drive, and uh, I'll be out there with a photographer probably taking a picture of the big traffic jams that are on I-70 on Saturday morning and, and maybe holding up a sign that said, you should have been on the train. <laughs> Turn it into marketing, I guess. We checked you your go. your website, and we see that a round-trip ride this weekend will be $98. Uh, won't that be a deterrent for some folks? I mean, that's more than I'd pay for gas. Well, of course, it costs more to drive back and forth to the resort than just the gasoline price, right? There's wear and tear on you and your car. Fares start at $39 each way. And the reason you're seeing the higher fare is that we are practically sold out on Saturday. Now, Sundays are a little softer selling than Saturdays. So if you're trying to to go on a, uh, at a less uh, uh, busy time, you'll find the fares are a bit lower. And the other thing that, Ryan, I think some people are forgetting is, although we're running Saturdays and Sundays through March, we're also running on the Monday holidays. And we have one of those this month and one of those next month. And those are pretty good times to score a deal, too. You were talking earlier about interesting buying patterns. Did you want to say a bit more about that? Well, even your engineer that I was speaking to before I was on the air, he says he's going up Saturday. He does not yet have a place to sleep up there. And I encouraged him to please do make those arrangements soon. And he's coming back on Sunday. A lot of people are doing that. That is to say they are overnighting, correct? Yes, they're making an overnight trip. And you can, and there's plenty of great places to stay at the resort 
or uh, nearby in Winter Park and Fraser. But uh, I, I do encourage people to make their lodging arrangements too, so they you know aren't trying to make a snow cave and sleep in that up there. So is this train going to make money? It is not going to lose money. It is not going to lose money. That is to say, it may break even. Is that your highest hope? At least do that, because as a company here at Amtrak, we fund most of our operations, more than 85% of our operations, from money we generate, whether it's from tickets on a train like this, which is sort of a charter, and we do a lot of charter business around the country, to our regular operations in the Northeast and to 500 destinations all over the country and three Canadian provinces. So we are doing this, uh, you know, firstly as a, as a great entrepreneurial step because we're using rail cars that would not ordinarily be earning their keep like this because we're in a fairly slow travel season now after the December holidays. And the folks in Colorado, our partners at the resort and the state of Colorado DOT, saw that this is a great idea. And we put in a, a heated platform up there at the resort. When we did the experiment, we did not have a formal platform. And that's important because there's a national center for people who ski with disabilities at the Winter Park Resort. So it all sort of makes sense. The stars aligned and the, we and the Union Pacific Railroad, who owns the tracks and the resort in the state of Colorado, all together said, why not? Let's do this. And after we did the experiment and tickets sold out in seconds, it's pretty clear there's a lot of demand. And so is the resort paying something for this? We have a business relationship with the resort and a business relationship with uh, Union Pacific. With Union Pacific, uh, which are both contributing to, to the project. Is, t- is taxpayer money at all funding this? No. No. Not, not for the operations. Now, there, I believe, is some taxpayer money in the construction of the platform. There was a grant from the State Transportation Commission. Because you want to have, you know, a, a more formal permanent platform than we used uh, during the uh, two experimental runs. And you want it to be ADA accessible. Again, there's a national center for that right at the resort. And it's important that uh, you know, people step off the train and not into what we would call ballast and you would call gravel. So we want people to, to easily board and deboard the train up there, and that's happened. That, that platform was uh, finished uh, several weeks ago. I believe News 9 was up there yesterday getting video of it. So $1.5 million from CDOT, 100000 I understand, from Denver. Is this a plum job for an Amtrak employee to, to be aboard this train? Well, I think so. But the other part of this is this idea of us doing it, working with the resort and Union Pacific, was a locally born idea by our Denver area employees. After the uh, former Anschutz ski train went away and some other efforts were unsuccessful, our folks got together and pitched up to management, why don't we do this? Hmm. So this is really an idea born locally from our employees and an organization called Rail, which is the Colorado Association of Railroad Passengers, which has a lot to say and do about service both in central Colorado on the route of the California Zephyr and also their activity in southeastern Colorado. And our train, the Southwest Chief, for that route has been in uh, some danger of, of discontinuance, Colorail stepped up. There's a Southwest Chief Commission down there appointed by the state that we're working with to, to preserve and improve that route. And the states of Colorado, Kansas, and New Mexico have been working with us and getting federal grants to improve that route. Heck, there are people in uh, Pueblo saying, hey, bend the route and bring it through here. 
and there's efforts to, uh, away uh, down there for that. So there's a lot of interest in expanding and improving rail transportation in Colorado in partnerships, and Colorail was a big part of this, along with our employees who uh, who developed the idea, sent it up the chain of command to management, and here we are this Saturday. Mark, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, we're welcome to uh, have as many people as we can. Go to Amtrak.com slash Winter Park Express for more information. Mark Malieri is an Amtrak spokesman and booster. The Winter Park Express leaves Denver Union Station Saturday morning at 7. After a break, why is Golden called Golden? And what's behind the name Steamboat Springs? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There are some unusual place names in this state. Swink, Dotsero, Quandry. Author Jim Flynn finds out where they came from in his new book, A Compendium of Curious Colorado Place Names. And Jim, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. Good morning. Before we dig into some of the stranger names, I really enjoyed the story of a place uh, that seems straightforward, Golden. Right? You're th- thinking, well, there's a lot of gold and gold rush history here, so it must be named for gold. That is not the case. Correct. It actually came from a man named Thomas Golden, who was an early prospector in what is now Jefferson County. And he started a mining camp in that area, and it picked up his name, the Golden Mining Camp, and that grew into the town of Golden. So it didn't have a darn thing to do with gold. But it's an awfully good last name to have. It if worked you're going... <laughs> out well. Yeah, I don't know whether he ever found any or not, but that's where it came from. On to the name of our state, Colorado. What does it mean? That's a Spanish word that refers to a color, a kind of reddish-brown color, and probably the best English translation of that color would be ruddy, R-U-D-D-Y. And early Spanish-speaking Explorers in Colorado gave that name to the Colorado River, Rio, Colorado, because of the uh, sedimentation in the river that can create a sort of brown, reddish color. And then the name carried over to the territory of Colorado in 1861 and the state of Colorado in 1876. I had a lot of aha moments reading this, and one of my uh, personal favorites is Werfano. So that's the county in southern Colorado. I knew it meant orphan in Spanish, but I was not aware of why. Yeah, it does mean orphan in Spanish. And uh, for many, many centuries, probably, there has been a very prominent landmark just to the north of Walsenburg and right along the I-25 corridor on the east side of the highway. That was given that name because it's a mound of volcanic rock that sits out in the middle of a flat plain area all by itself, and it's kind of an orphan. So that's the derivation of the name. And then it carried over to the county when Colorado became a territory in 1861 and as one of the original 17 counties in the territory. You can see a photo of the orphan of Werfano at cprnews.org. Let's stick with southern Colorado and the town of Swink, population 610, and it's named for a farmer who really transformed that part of the state. Right. A man named George Swink, he came here from the East Coast, and one of the things he missed was melons. And he was talking to a friend one day, and he said, boy, I really miss the melons that I could grow back on the East Coast. And his friend uh, went to someone he knew in Massachusetts, and as I recall, it was a former governor of Massachusetts. And 
that person sent out some seeds to George for melons, and George used those seeds to begin to develop uh, what became the Rocky Ford cantaloupes and watermelons, and he basically made that part of Colorado famous as a melon-growing area. It seems that we should know that name Swink better, given how much melon we eat from that part of the state. Yeah, although if you've ever driven through the town, you know, you you might not notice. (laughs) What's the deal with Steamboat Springs? So the river through town just is not large enough for a steamboat. That can't be where the name comes from. That's not it. The name comes from a spring, a geothermal spring in the area that actually made a chugging sound like a steamboat. So the spring was named Steamboat Spring, and then that name carried over to the town. Unfortunately, in the early 1900s, a rail line was built through the area of the spring and somehow in the process they wiped out the chugging part of the spring so it chugs no more. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner and we're speaking with author Jim Flynn about his compendium of curious Colorado place names. And before we explore some of um, my epiphanies here, what what were some of your favorite stories behind place names? Well, you know, the one that amazes me that people just don't seem to know, Ryan, is Denver. I mean, I've lived in Colorado 40-whatever years, and when I started working on this book, I didn't know where Denver came from. And, okay. Uh, I have yet to find anyone who did. And it's a, it's a guy. Yeah. He was James W. Denver was the governor of the Territory of Kansas in 1858 when William Larimer started a settlement out here. And Larimer was a land speculator, and he was from Kansas, and he knew uh, Denver and kind of wanted to schmooze him in pursuit of governmental favors for his new settlement. So the name carried over to the new settlement that Larimer and some others started that grew into what we now know as Denver. So the name came from the territorial governor of Kansas, James W. Denver. Is it true that he never actually stepped foot in Denver? You know, I don't know that. Okay. Did I say that in the book? <laughs> I, well, that is a r- vicious rumor that I heard, uh, and uh, we will try to confirm whether that is true or not uh, in the interest of not creating fake news here about the city of Denver and where its name comes from. The name Montrose um, on the Western Slope has a literary connection, and I, I just loved learning about this. Yeah, you wouldn't think that pioneers coming to a part of western Colorado would uh, choose something out of literary history to name their community, but that's what happened here. The name came from a, a novel from uh, written by Sir Walter Scott that was published in 1819 called A Legend of Montrose. And the novel was actually about a steamy love triangle, but in the background there's a civil war going on in Scotland in the 1640s, and one of the important players there was the Earl of Montrose. So Somehow that worked its way into our current city of Montrose. Sneffels, Matt Sneffels, one of Colorado's 14,000-foot peaks, also may have a literary connection. It's such a strange word, Sneffels. Where does it come from? Yeah, there's still a mystery about that, but the theory that I like best, and this may be as much legend as fact, but uh, we have another novel, Jules Verne's 1864 novel, Journey to the Center of the Earth. Right, right had a volcano in Iceland that had the name Snaefell, S-N-A-E-F-E-L-L, and uh, that was where the hole in the earth was that allowed you to travel to the center of the earth. (laughs) So the the mountain here in Colorado was named probably 10 years later, so there's a chronology there that comes pretty close together, 1864, 1874. So 
That's one of the theories. Uh, another one that's probably kind of silly is that it was so cold and miserable in this part of Colorado that the miners in the 1870s all caught colds and had the sniffles, and that carried over <laughs> to the name of the mountain. Yes, but Mount Sniffles somehow doesn't have the same gravitas even as Sniffles. No, it yeah. just doesn't work. Uh, another peak, Quandry. What's it referring yeah, to? Yeah, and that one is interesting also. There were a group of miners uh, on what is now Quandry Peak, and they came upon an ore deposit that they couldn't identify. And so they found themselves in a quandary. And I don't know whether they ever figured out what the mineral was, but at least this inspired them to name the peak Quandry Peak. One of my favorite place names is Dot Cerro. So it's along I-70 in Eagle County. And it's it's two words put together. What is dot zero? Well, the uh, theory there, and I'll use that word because I'm not sure anybody knows for sure, but there was an old railroad map for the Denver and Rio Grande Western Railroad, and it showed a route line, a railroad route line, and there was a starting point on this map for the rail line uh, with a decimal point and a zero, so dot zero. Dot zero becomes and, dot zero, yeah, potentially. Something like that. And then the community... Uh, developed around that location, and and so the name evolved out of that. There's certainly a great deal of variety found in these names. Um, What's the process for someone who finds previously undiscovered land in Colorado and wants to name it after their, you know, dear sweet Nana? Yeah, well, it it was a lot easier 150 years ago, but that resulted in a great deal of confusion and duplication of naming. And finally, a federal agency was put together together Uh, called the National Board on Geographic Names, and that agency still exists. And if you stumble into some place in Colorado that doesn't have a name yet and you want to try to name it, you have to file an application to this agency, which has representatives from the CIA and the DIA and the Library of Congress and the uh, various other federal agencies, and you have to make them all happy with your name and convince them that Uh, This is an appropriate name, and they need to approve you. And there's something like a 60-page manual of rules that uh, goes along with this agency. So it's a pretty high bar if you want to do that. You'd have better luck in a a municipality trying to come up with a name for a street. Uh, As you write, place names may come from people's names, from books, as we've heard, from geology, nature. And, of course, uh, lots of places in Colorado carry American Indian names, Uray, Arapaho, Manitou. Uh, but tell us what Yampa means. Well, and yeah. that's the river that runs through Steamboat, by the way, also in right, County. Right, it's one of Colorado's major rivers. It goes some 250 miles and uh, to a confluence with the Green River, which then goes into the Colorado River. But And Yampa's a town. Right. and But the name is an Indian word that referred to a plant that uh, at least many, many years ago was very abundant in northwest Colorado and was a major food source for the Native Americans living in that area. And if you cook the roots of this plant, it produces something in the nature of water chestnuts. Uh, and again, it was a staple of the Indian populations in that area. The Indians also discovered that if you ate it raw, it worked very well as a laxative. And okay. uh, doing my research for this book, I decided to stay away from that. I didn't really want to experiment. And uh, I see, to try it for yourself. Uh, so who who knew that uh, the Yampa River might be related to a laxative in some distant regard? Yeah, I hadn't thought of that either. Thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you.
That is author Jim Flynn. He lives in a place called Colorado Springs, and he's written a compendium of Colorado place names. Have you ever been down to Colorado? I spend a lot of time there in my mind. And that's Colorado Matters, the name of our program. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News. Colorado.